Well, well, Johnny boy. Welcome <laughs> to Shaken and Disturbed. Oh my goodness, what a great little intro. Did you like that? I did. It's a little <laughs> it's a little different from your usual, but I like it. I like the way we we throw we throw everyone who's listening, you know. Well, I mean, let me just full disclosure that we're recording this on a Friday, at least on a rainy day in New York on Friday. And last night, John Thrasher, for those of us for those of you who support the Patreon, um, got a little taste into me and John being goofy <laughs> um, late at night. When yeah. perhaps you know awesome. we weren't in our be- our best way, but John and I have now um, almost exclusively started talking via voice memo, <laughs> know, yeah. which is good and bad because yeah. by the way, when you keep a voice memo, yeah. where does it go? Well, it stays in your text thread technically. So because like normal voice memos on at least with iMessages will disappear after 15 seconds after you've listened or something like that. So if you keep it, it just stays in your uh, text thread. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, does it go into like my recordings? Neither oh, no. here nor there. John um, recorded me literally laughing hysterically from some of our <laughs> ad buys, and he got me. Let's just say he got me. And so if you ha- yeah. are a member of our Patreon and haven't listened to it, um, Pretty you funny. Should. You should. Yeah. And yeah. also, it's fun, isn't it? Because this is another one of those examples of things that, like, we would have loved to do in our previous shows, but, like, we just couldn't really get away with it. Not get away with it, but... It just wouldn't really fit in, you know? And now that we have a Patreon to share our text messages and screenshots of our text messages and voice memos, it's just like, you guys are going to get some, you're going to get to know us really well in a way that you might not have realized, I think is the best way to explain that. But, yeah, um, just just an unfiltered conversation, if you will. But uh, we have a sure. lot to get to today, so I wanna I wanna get into it right away. Yes. First off, before we get to some Kristen Smart stuff right off the top, and yeah. then uh, into some Gacy, are you drinking anything today, John? I'm, yes, I'm just having whiskey. You know, I'm still working on that brown sugar bourbon from Heritage Distilling Distillery. No, Distilling, and um, I love it. It's a great little. It's like you said, it's a rainy afternoon in uh, Maryland as well. So it's a great little pick-me-up. What about you? Well, I I needed a little bit of a pick-me-up. I was going to go a little sobs today and drink a Diet Coke because I still have a lot of work to do. But it is a Friday after all, and I'm committed committed to the craft. So I am (laughs) sipping on some coffee bourbon today. Ooh. Oh, that's right. I have some of that coffee bourbon. Maybe I'll try some of that too. I finished the first bottle. Now, I know people are thinking like, oh my God, Darren finished one bottle when John has been working on the same yeah. bottle of whiskey yeah. for five days, five years. Uh, right. th- these bottles are a lot smaller. They're right. a little bit more of like a flask type yeah. size. So you can theory finish them over the course of two recordings. And so I'm on now to my second recording with mm. them. Um, and I'm very excited. And I'm Look at the bottle. Look at us drinking some bourbon. By the way, I also have a uh, a guest here on the show today. It's uh, the birds outside because it's very well, we warm. We need that. Yeah, we need that. So I have the window open. I was thinking about closing it. Can you hear that blue jay? Hold on, uh, right there. Yes, I get. Yeah, it's like it's like screaming it's like a, f you to me or something. It's asking us to uh, talk about John Wayne Gacy. If I, I know, can, it's uh, like hurry up. Yeah, And, you know, we did, uh, you know, we did, as you can tell from the title, John and I are breaking down the Peacock documentary, the six-part yeah. Peacock documentary, John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. But first, we obviously had to just make a statement, you know, Kristen Smart, a lot of stuff in the news today. Mm-hmm. And if you followed us over from Martinis and Murder, from Oxygen, we definitely covered this case originally. So we're just going to give you an update here. Well, this week, Paul Flores, who 
was always a little sus in the mm-hmm. case when we were when we were talking about it. I, you know, I don't want to say that like therefore he's guilty, but was always a little sussy uh, yeah. to us when we were originally reported on it. And this week he was actually arrested for the murder of Kristen Smart, who, if you guys remember, just to give you a little refresher, she was that Cal Poly student who was mm-hmm. like six feet tall, went missing in 1996 along, uh, and then Paul along with his father was also arrested for kind of being an accessory after the fact. Could have helped yeah. him kind of bury the body, get rid of it. So prosecutors say that Paul Flores murdered Kristen Smart during a rape attempt, mm. according to the New York Times. And if you remember, Paul Flores had some run-ins with other people as well on this campus. It wasn't right. kind of this random one-time thing. So that's why we always felt a little suspect about him. And <laughs> and afterwards, his story never really added up to a lot, but there also wasn't enough right. evidence to really convict back then. That's um, right. You know. And, you know, in February of last year and even a month ago, there were some, I think, search warrants executed on... Paul and or his father's houses or something. And um, by the way, we should mention her remains are still not found. So she is still technically a missing person, despite being declared dead, I think in 2002, several years after she went missing. But um, one of these uh, quotes from the New York Times really stood out to me. I wanted to read it. Um, Sheriff Parkinson is the one who was uh, responding to um, reporters for the news this week. He says, quote, what I can tell you is that significant new information has come into the sheriff's office that we've reviewed over the last two years and some very important information just a month ago. We've got physical evidence. We have witness statements, things that, in our view, in the totality, have brought us to the point where we believe we can go forward and prosecute Mr. Flores for the murder of Kristen Smart. And quote. let me just and let me just say this. So obviously, we're gonna the case that we're covering here with Gacy deals a lot mm-hmm. with uh, ups and downs in a cases, kind of letting cases go cold. There's a lot of things that aren't being solved with the police, but. Here, you know, I imagine, and this is just my point of view, and you know that I'm skeptical of a lot of things, including police, but I imagine they're not going to reopen a case after 25 years and make this go public unless they were beyond a reasonable doubt sure that this was the guy here. Because to inflict further damnation upon, you know, Kristen Smart's family and anyone related to this case, I imagine would just be a shitstorm unless they had actual good evidence to kind of bring this back up. So I think there is a little bit of a reinvigoration. We should all feel with this. Yeah. And, you know, what that evidence is that the uh, sheriff is talking about, we don't know. So surely more details are going to going to emerge in the coming weeks and weeks and months, if I can speak. And we will certainly be on top of this as it does. I'm very curious to see if this gets, you know, eventually it'll get to a trial, um, what that evidence is. Because it sounds like, you know, they aren't just going to, they're not playing around, is what it sounds like here. <laughs> yeah, it seems like to me. Uh, and speaking of not playing around, I think we should. We have a, we have a lot to get through with Gacy today yeah. because there's it's a six park dock, and uh, you know, for anyone, you can watch it on Peacock right now. It's yeah. called John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. And just overall, before we kind of break it down to each episode, I, uh, which I thought was a very good documentary, all in all, and I think I, I learned more about Gacy than I thought that I would. Me too. But originally, when I sort of watched the first six parts, I kind of thought it could have probably been condensed to four parts. Four, yeah, me too. And kept it a little bit more 
concise because it, it kind of flopped around a little bit. Like yeah. it was kind of like, okay, well let's go ahead 20 years and talk about this. So when we we're talking <laughs> about it, we wrote notes it's as it's being presented to us in the documentary. Right. So if you feel like our story is a little <clears throat> haphazard, it's just because that we're trying to set up the timeline of how it's coming across to us. And that's, yeah. and, and it's a little, it's a little redundant. I think, I do think it could have been probably a little bit condensed more, but every part offered something new. I and, was just going to say uh, that. Yeah. You know, I, I learned more about, and I think everyone kind of feels like they know the Gacy case, but, right. uh, and, and, and I will say, I, I thought I did as well and I didn't realize Me too. Yeah. a lot of this stuff. So let's get right into part one, the trigger, John. Yeah, I completely agree with you um you know basically we find out we learn about john wayne gacy and how he was portrayed in the media this all happened in des plaines illinois yeah um which i think in french should be deplan maybe darren i don't know if you're uh you know i was thinking yeah. it i was thinking i was like i was like is it des plaines like as like, but everybody like, in the doc said des plaines so I was everyone like, said des plaines yeah, so right. it is des plaines and he is the homosexual thrill killer, thrill killer how that's right kind of being portrayed i think we all know him as obviously the clown but yes. a lot of people and including myself uh sexuality plays a big part in well this that's a good point more than i ever thought it would well, and that's such a great point because as we all know from, you know, being true crime fans, 29 bodies were buried underneath his home and nearby streams actually in 1978. So, you know, I think you make a great point Darren about the homosexuality being a part of a, almost like a player, like a like a thing that happens, a, a big moment, not necessarily moment, but a big part of these cases. And in the 70s, you know, gay, especially gay men were just looked in a very different way than 2021. So we'll get to some of that throughout. And, and especially with like an AIDS pandemic, I mean, I think a lot of people, mm -hmm. and this is maybe a little bit too early for the AIDS pandemic, but a I'm little, just setting yeah. a statement you know, of starting to solve the case. Right. A lot of these young boys who were murdered were seen as runaways or kind of, for lack of a mm -hmm. better term, like a discard of society, kind of like how we treat sex workers, people of color today, yeah. uh, today and, and, and historically. And through but, history. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting to everyone to think like, oh, white men, you know, those cases get solved. Not necessarily yeah, that's true. when we look at the Gacy case. So it's just, it's interesting. So we, we jump right into around the 1980s where there were several recorded phone calls with Craig Bowley, I think it's how you say his Bully. last name yeah he's yeah he's the correspondent he visits gacy for six years while he's in jail so right off the top we get a great sort of understanding of we're going to get to know john wayne gacy through people who were talking to him yeah he's and, a prison correspondent so i imagine exactly. he was just curious yes about him so then there's Bob Ressler, who's an FBI profiler and was Gacy's friend. He's the first kind of guy that came up with the phrase serial killer, which I didn't even know was associated with John Wayne Gacy. So that was interesting to yeah. me. Um, but the Menard Correctional Center grants interviews between Gacy and Bowley and Ressler. So then there's on-camera interviews. Darren, you made a great point in our notes. You know, you said Gacy comes off as so damn normal. And yeah. that was one of the most chilling parts, not just with part one for me, but throughout all six parts of this was seeing him rationalize and talk about this stuff in such a calm, um, just casual demeanor was so disturbing for lack of a yeah. better word here you know no it's it's and it's interesting and obviously we've talked about this before with ed kemper and how it's obviously this yeah. 
you know, this psychotic type of behavior where you almost think you're untouchable. But for him, you know, he's like, I'm a family man. I'm a clown. I'm a this and a that. Mm -hmm. And that what, even when he's talking about the bodies being discovered under his house, as if he had, let's just say he had nothing to do with it. If I discovered 29 bodies underneath my house, I would feel probably erratic in my response or being at least squicked out. Nothing like that Nothing, with him. Yeah. And he maintains this kind of like cool, calm collectiveness almost the entire time. And your point about, you know, discovering bodies under the house, and we'll get to a lot of the gory details of that in a moment. But I I don't know if you did this, but I immediately was like, what if there are bodies under this house that I'm in or anyone's house that you just never know? It's like, well, and as we'll get to, there's clearly other bodies that have not mm-hmm. been discovered or at least... We think there are other bodies that have not been discovered under John Wayne Gacy, but let's continue on and we'll get to that for sure. Yeah, so his, um, the home that he lived in that had the bodies underneath that he, you know, was burying was 8213 West Somerdale Avenue. It's in Chicago's West Side. This all happened, basically, the discovery was in uh, December, so it was very cold. Darren, I want to let you know, I looked up this residence on Google Maps surprisingly it is and i thought what who in their right mind would keep that house like that i would destroy it put turn it into a memorial if nothing else i want to know who lives there and like i wonder how they market that shit like i know because even what remember when you had your friend who was selling that house that like Mm -hmm. skylar niece died in or like that was the like well you can't disclose that information really right right? yeah like You'd think that could be a selling point, though, to some weird people. Some weird people would probably be interested. I feel like when my friend, and just for context for those who might be new to the show, I had a friend who bought the house that um, was owned by the parents and the girl who killed someone named Skylar Niece. It, she, I don't believe, was actually killed in the house, but she yeah, lived I don't in the think house. So. Right. But, you know, I think what he actually told me at the time was it's not something you disclose unless they ask. You know, if a potential buyer is like, has anyone died in this house? Then there's a responsibility, I believe, to the real estate. Uh, agent to disclose that information, but I don't imagine twenty nine people dying in that I house. I know, though. right? Like, so Robert Peast, speaking of, uh, was a fifteen year old who went missing on December eleventh, nineteen seventy eight. His mom came to the pharmacy where he was working to pick him up, and basically that was the last she saw of him. She, you know, he she knew he was there working. Um, he, I think, the way it was described by John Wayne Gacy himself was that. He came outside uh, to get something. Gacy said, hop in my car. I'll run you up to my house. And that was pretty much it. Um, Parents, you know, the parents of this boy filed a missing persons report. Um, He was talking to a contractor and tells his mom to wait, of course. So obviously the question then becomes, well, who was the contractor? Because that's the information that she had. Well... Darren, right, because was, her her son was trying to get more money. You know, that's I right. Mean, it, they, he was so Gacy. It turns out is kind of flashing this cash, offering to pay him double. Right. You know, and what and what young boy isn't going to go pursue yeah. that? You know what I mean? In a lot of ways. I mean, obviously now we can look at it and be like, holy shit, it was Gacy. But that contractor who Gacy owned a contracting business, uh, right. PDM Contracting, and so it ended up being him, of course. Yeah, of course. So. Um, 
Turns out to be him, PDM contractors, as you mentioned. Everyone thought Gacy was a decent boss and guy, kind of jovial. I think one guy calls him roly-poly, which is a great kind of like way to describe him. But the consensus, and I think we talked about this so much in other cases over the years, Darren, is that... You know, he seemed like an overall, like, kind of rather normal guy. You know, people seemed to gravitate towards him. There was nothing suspicious per se about him, at least at this point. Right. Um, And I just feel like it's 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 an interesting detail to so many of these murder cases. And from a business standpoint, you know, I mean, his employees were young men. But keep in mind, this isn't a... This is intensive labor, being a contractor, you know. Well, and so back true, yeah. then, you know, I mean, not to say there's certain, you know, gender or sex discrepancies, but like mm-hmm. most of the time, that happens to be male-oriented work, and yeah, so and it, young. It, and yeah. young, because you know, for obvious reasons, it's a lot right. of a lot of a lot of labor and inexpensive labor as well. And so, it's almost like he's hiding in plain sight because it does <laughs> kind of make sense to have these young boys. Yeah. work for him. That didn't look weird, you know, and still yeah. it might not look weird. I'm just saying it's a kind of a way to get, you yeah. know, having a contracting business is actually a very good kind of scapegoat for things like this. Yeah. And so investigators are looking for not just him, but I think other missing kids. Um, so they actually talked to Gacy. He claims that he didn't know anything about them. None of the missing kids from the drugstore. He gets a little defensive, which makes the detectives look into him a little bit further. And it turns out that he was on parole. He was arrested in Iowa and convicted of sodomy of a young boy. We later hear in the documentary, I think we might mention this, where he says, actually, there was nothing like that. It was just pornographic, whatever. Um, like he was just trying to, he was showing pornographic things to a boy, which obviously. Like it's that, still wrong, but it's still wrong. But I think yeah. he was trying to say he didn't touch anyone, so yeah. therefore it's kind of a different type of crime. It's like right. a, a less squicked crime. I think yeah. all of us kind of don't believe him when he says no, that. But I don't think this so. is yeah. just what he says. Yes. Well, then as soon as the police leave, Gacy tried to flee in his car pretty much immediately. The police attempt to get a search warrant just kind of based on all of this behavior. I mean, it's a lot of weird, suspicious things going on. Um, Lawrence Finder and Terry Sullivan are the prosecutors on this case. The search does not come up with Robert Peace or any bodies. So obviously they were not looking under the crawl space at this point. Right. Um, they did, however, find porn a class ring that did not belong to Gacy and two books that were sort of homosexual in nature and receipt from what I believe was was this like um film development yes it was and that's developing gonna, films? going to come into play uh, yeah. later this so the reason why we put that 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 detail in is because it does come up to be actual evidence but yes you exactly. know two books that are homosexual in nature now granted that's not evidence of really anything other yeah. than the fact of maybe someone's sexual proclivity, but the fact that, you know, it, it helps set the narrative for who Gacy exactly. was, that it might, that he might like boys, especially young boys. The class ring here, you know, I did think about it because when my grandfather died a year ago, uh, he wears this Masonic ring on his temp, on his pinky. 
Mm. And it was something I was always fascinated with because my grandfather <laughs> was a Freemason. And yeah. if you know anything about the Freemasons, they can't talk about what goes on there. So I used to like my, my joke with my grandfather was like, I would pepper him with questions. And like, you basically don't <laughs> know why you're joining the secret society. And like, no one can know. And he just, he, he wore this ring and it was given to him by his father. And when he died, I asked mm. for it um, because it was just, mm-hmm. it was very symbolic of me and him. And I wear it every day. And yeah. so I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh my God, would they find like a ring that was like, you know, a hundred years old, you know, obviously finding a class ring, a class ring specifically is a little weird, but not really evidence of anything is my point. It's like, I'm wearing kind of a quote unquote class ring too, but it's not. You know, but it's sentimental of some. Reason, I was just going to you know? say it's connected to a relative. Like this guy, this this class ring was not connected to him, so right, right, became a little sus there. They also found two other driver's license of other individuals. That's now, sus. That's very sus as well. Gacy was married with two children out in Iowa when he was in prison, but then gets out and heads back to Chicago. Lots of his former employees also show up missing. So. You know, there's just like a lot going on here with like missing people and connecting into Gacy sure. already. He has an incredibly long record. It's it's amazing, Darren, that no one had noticed any of this along the way. And one of the prosecutors makes a point. It's like, listen, it's not the way it is in 2000, whatever this was, 20 or so. Um, you can't just search, sit down at a computer and search. You have to like physically call and like ask people to look up the files. And again, these are missing yeah. young boys. And uh, back then, runaways was certainly a thing. And, right. You know, men going out to go sow their wild oats. And so it's right. just, it's, it's, it's very weird. All the while, this kind of police surveillance is happening of right. Gacy, right? So that's kind of the, the scene we're setting here. It sounds like there's police surveillance of you as well at the moment Always. Behind, Always. The, behind you. Um, just in case anyone's listening and think they're being followed by police. That's just Darren, Darren's yes. audio. It's a fire truck, actually. Oh, okay, fire truck. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, police go into the Moose Lodge, which is like, what? Do you, how do you explain the Moose it's Lodge? Like a, it's like a, it's like a local hangout bar, yeah. like where Gacy's like eating and hanging out with friends, because like he's well aware that this surveillance is happening of him at right. the time. But again, think about his like psychopathy, where it's like he's hiding yeah. in plain sight. Like they didn't find anything in the house. Like he invited right. them in, so it's like, yeah, sure, tell me, yeah. fine, yeah, tell sure. me, let me, let me buy you go breakfast, even, yeah, right. Psychopath. Psychopath. Yeah. So Gacy then involved himself in politics. He was the Democratic precinct coordinator and was a foot soldier for the higher ups, we learned, which I didn't know about him. I didn't realize he was so involved with which does make a lot of sense Mm -hmm. when we talk about the talk about the connection to this case that he did have a lot of political leanings and a lot of political higher up friends. Just something to keep in mind in the back of your head here. A hundred percent. He was also Pogo the Clown, as most of us know. He liked to make make kids happy, apparently. I was really impressed with this documentary because I do feel like a lot of, you know, conversation around John Wayne Gacy is like, oh my God, can you believe it? He was also a clown. He went to these kids' houses. But they really didn't dwell on that. I mean, there were no, as far as this documentary at least says, there were really no... Um, connections to Pogo the Clown and murders. A lot of these murders were connected to just his, uh, you know, his business, his, um, what is it, the carpentry business? What am I, what's the word? I'm forgetting yeah, the name. Uh, contractor business. Contracting, and that's it. It's Thank funny you. because when I think about Gacy, I think about him being this killer clown, which is true. Right. But you're right. This documentary, the clown is kind of this 
tertiary effect just to set up character development exactly. of who he is as opposed to anything like they show a lot of clown photos but it has nothing it just kind of tries to show that he's like a family man a man of the people yeah. like he's a good dude but nothing related to murder or anything like that yeah no, exactly. He also had a Secret Service clearance, which I thought was crazy being a convicted uh, convicted sex offender. Isn't that wild, How though? How on like, earth does that happen? And this is my point, and this kind of sets the stage for a lot of it, which is why this documentary yeah. is good, because it really does go to show that this guy, you know, he's hiding in plain sight in a lot of ways, so people mm-hmm. aren't necessarily looking at that. And if you have higher-ups, like... You know, it's crazy that the Biden administration, like, is firing people, is not hiring people based on a marijuana conviction. This guy <laughs> had secret service level of clearance <laughs> as a sex offender. I mean, I mean, what? It, yeah. Like, it's just wild to think about. And I granted, I understand this was 40 years ago, but like, come well, on. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, come on, guys. Well, you know, Gacy starts to show some weird personality changes. He's getting very aggravated. I think I would I would interpret this as like he's sort of you know, like maybe realizing they're on to him potentially. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's probably driving him crazy because he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He apparently has employees. And we'll get into this very, very significantly dig some trenches underneath the house in the crawl space for quote unquote drain pipes. He even puts lime down there uh, to cover up the smell and was told that this would help the clay foundation from rotting, which is of course perfect for covering up bodies since police were looking for mounds of dirt, you know, they right. weren't people looking... are looking for a gravesite, not lime yeah. underneath a crawl space, which for all intents and purposes should have a reason for being there. Totally. Absolutely. Then they find out that the film receipt, which they, I think, confiscated, like I said earlier, from the original search warrant was actually from Robert Peace's coat. So now he has something that was in Peace's uh Possession. possession yeah right. and this ties them together so gacy um invites the surveillance team to dinner at his house the heat kicks on when one of them is in the bathroom and they smell this horrific smell like a morgue aka decaying flesh and before you know it they have probable cause and um they're now able to do a separate search warrant where they begin to find bones on the property so basically what i think we're getting at here with episode one is um he was a weirdo in a lot of different ways um yes he he was a psychopath and the smell um in the house when he invited them in really kind of set up his his demise as well and remember that episode was called the trigger because this obviously triggers a bunch of stuff and so then we go into this second episode which is called warning signs okay and the and the the funny thing about this episode is it's called warning signs and gacy is putting on clown says putting on (laughs) clown makeup relaxes him which to me is a warning sign as a general rule clowns do not make anyone feel relaxed so basically police (laughs) seek the second search warrant after they smell this horrible smell once the heat kicks on which makes gacy go absolutely ballistic i'm assuming because he's just i mean he invites the police into his fucking house to have dinner so clearly he doesn't think he can get caught okay Right, right so police start digging they dig in the crawl space and they keep finding left femurs i hate that detail very weird and it's specifically left femurs so yeah this this doc interviews gacy's sister imagine being gacy's sister first I mean, of all like are you kidding me like i i often forget that these ki- serial killers have yeah. like quote unquote normal, normal members of their family yes, exactly you know yes. and and this woman 
for all I know, seems sweet, totally fine, kind of, you know, again, quote unquote yeah. normal. So she claims that when he moved to Iowa from Chicago, he became like a different John. And she's mm. actually convinced that something happened to John that would cause this whole thing to happen. It's just hard to imagine that someone would do this without any sort of yeah. nature nurture kind of taking it you know, putting in its place. So Gacy is part of this Waterloo Junior Chamber of Commerce. Remember we were talking about politics yeah. and they take, they take leadership in business and water rule. They sort of ruled the town, these guys. And John being this very charming guy, as you can imagine, very charismatic, very, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a little skill to be a serial killer here. He was sure, a big yeah. recruiter. In fact, he became one of the main guys and they actually got members, um, with, with porno films and girls dancing um, mm. it, as part of the events, this was in order to boost membership. So he's kind of like, hey, guys, Ugh. you know, do you want to see some sexy girls uh, come to the meeting? Which, you know, to be fair, if naked girls were at a book club, <laughs> I would be in every book club that was imaginable. So to be fair, this is kind of an interesting rec- like recruiting know, tactic that I can't disagree with. But I was just going to say. Now that we know who Gacy is, I do disagree with it. I you was know? just going to say. Aren't men so pathetic? And then I was like, I have a feeling Darren's going to go into she would end up at this place if they were Uh, giving these things out. Yeah. I do sort of understand this guy's mentality of like, hey, how are we going to, you know, it's like, it's like men. Especially. You know, even in bars, right? If men show up yeah. with five girls, maybe they don't have to pay the fee to come in, or they can only come in if there's five girls. So right. sex sells, and Gacy was no stranger to understanding that tactic. And yeah. when Gacy was arrested for sodomy in Iowa, the victim was Donald Voorhees, who was a son of a state representative, which is wild to me that a son of a state representative, like, to me, that would be like, oh, you fuck with the wrong kind of guy. Totally. But, yeah. you know, nothing really happens. Donald Voorhees will come kind of back into the picture here. So just keep in mind, he was the guy that uh, Gacy was arrested for in Iowa. So at this time, Gacy was running for the president of the JCC. And he actually tried to then kill the victim uh, mm-hmm. once he made the complaint against him. So he's kind of trying to silence everyone around him uh, when Donald Voorhees kind of comes to the table with this, you know, like, oh, he sodomized me. Um, He tries to have him killed. Uh, Gacy was just a classic, unemotional, unempathetic, completely flatline type of guy. And when I say flatline, I don't mean that he was monotoned. He just... It like you could kind of say anything to him of like, hey, we're going to McDonald's tonight. Also, twenty nine bodies were found under your house, and I think his reaction would be the same. The exact same, it, totally. Yes. That's a great way to to describe that. I and agree. that's really what we meant when we say flatline type of guy. It was like, yeah, you know, he's so in his head, and he's obviously very smart. This guy is very. I smart. know, I know. Very I didn't want to. You know, it's so tough and tricky to sort of give people those kind of classifications when we're talking on the show, but. I don't think you can really go forward with this case and this person without noticing that like, yeah, he was, he was a manipulator. He was a lot of different things, but I think at the end of the day, for better or worse, he was a smart guy in the way that he was working. Yeah. And I, and I, and again, that's not glorifying it, but I do think that you have to have a level of intelligence to get away with what you got away with for so long. You know, dumb Mm. criminals get caught pretty early and pretty quickly (laughs) and they don't get 33 victims at least under their belt because they're sloppy. And, right, yeah. 
you know, and listen, we want criminals to be dumb, but I think we have to give it up to Gacy to some extent to understand the mastermind that was really behind this. And Ray yeah. Cornell becomes this figure in this documentary, and he's sort of this former friend in prison. He was in prison with Gacy. He befriends him. Um, and, you know, in prison, Ray Cornell says, Gacy's still recruiting people for the JCC, and it <laughs> actually becomes the biggest chapter in the state, in the prison. So yeah. he's working overtime in, in prison, and here's the thing. He also got, he lucked out with his role in prison. He, he got a, a job in the kitchen, which yeah. is high-powered stakes. So he treated the guards very well. So he knew how to manipulate this whole system. He kind of, he made yeah. friends with everybody, and Gacy's father, and we, we don't know much about his parents, but we do kind of know that the dad is a little bit of a trigger here because Gacy's mm -hmm. father dies on Christmas Day while Gacy's in prison, and he claims that he felt very responsible. I, I, you know, according to the sister, Gacy had a very hard upbringing with his father. His dad was an alcoholic. He was physically abusive. His father was very conservative, which I only imagine would affect maybe any homosexual tendencies that his son might have had. Yeah, there could course. have been a lot of abuse there. And we don't know all the factors because Gacy hasn't either come to terms with it or ever admitted fully what happened on the record. Mm -hmm. But clearly from everything that we know and have discussed, the father's a trigger, something went down, and this had sort of helped Gacy become this maniacal serial killer in a lot of ways. Darren and I have been trying to cut down on carbs, sugar, and unhealthy foods, and we realized that we basically can't eat anything anymore. That is until we discovered the deliciousness of Magic Spoon, a cereal brand that's actually healthy. The thing I love about Magic Spoon is that there are zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. In other words, it's free of all that bad stuff. I love chocolate and peanut butter-flavored anything, and Magic Spoon has absolutely delicious flavors in both cocoa and peanut butter. I tried them both, and I could have eaten the entire box. In fact, maybe I did eat the entire box. That's not your business. Go to magicspoon.com slash shaken to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code shaken at checkout to save $5 off of your order. And Magic Spoon is actually so confident in their product. It's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash shaken and use code shaken to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. And you know, one of the interesting things about this section of the documentary was that the sister even weighed in on this and was like, yeah, dad was an alcoholic. He was very abusive to all of us, but he really kind of targeted John. And obviously, like, we are not here to, we're not John Wayne Gacy apologists, but from God, a psychoanalytical no. uh, point of view, you do have to think that, like, that is certainly weighing in on his behaviors later. I mean, when you're mentally and physically abused like that, I mean, this is how serial killers are made. There's almost like a recipe for it, in a sense. Yeah, especially because the sister kind of has lived <clears throat> to tell the tale. And so we yeah, know, right. and granted, siblings are different, but I imagine, and my brother and I are different, right? And mm -hmm. we're only three years apart, but I imagine that if there was some sort of abuse that my brother was getting that I didn't get, like totally. him and I wouldn't be the same similar people that we are today. And so- right. 
that's kind of all we can go on. Again, it's just conjecture from our standpoint, but this is mm-hmm. how John and I feel about this. Now, yeah. remember when I said that Gacy had sort of the kitchen duty and he treated the guards very well. So Gacy was actually let out of prison for that sodomy charge earlier uh, because he was cooking for the warden and was a smooth talker. So he kind of managed to manipulate his way out of prison. Yeah, and I think the documentary mentions that his mother, after the after his father died, the mother was sort of lonely and needed the help. So she was like writing letters to high powered, you know, people in, in high power, um, and just sort of was able to make it happen. I think his original yeah. sentence was ten years, and he got out after I think it was like a year or two or something crazy like that. Exactly. So, and, yeah. and, and and you can tell Gacy feels some sort of way about his mother. And, 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 and you yeah. should know that the mother is undyingly loyal to Gacy in the end, uh, to right. the very, very end. And after prison, you know, Gacy gets out early. He moves to Chicago. And this is where he forms this construction business. So now we're kind right. of back to where we, we started. Exactly. And, He convinces his mother to buy a house that Gacy picked up, the Somerdale house, which is in Mm -hmm. Norwood Park. So they kind of have that together. And his sister's best friend, Carol Lofgren, uh, was always kind of bemused by Gacy. And they start dating and they marry. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gacy gets his mother a new apartment after he gets married uh, in order for, you know, him to live his, his married life. And it's important to note his mother... Gacy's mother has always protected him. Um, She actually once found Gacy in her apartment in the dark with another Mm. man, and it scared her, but she still kind of protected him. I think to some extent Mm -hmm. Gacy's mother knew a lot more than she let on and certainly knew a lot more about the abuse than let on, and that could deal with her guilt about it and letting John kind of be John. There's a lot we don't know here. This This is just our opinion. But Gacy does admit out loud to being bisexual, but that his preference is women, which is called not being bisexual, but that's fine. While TV has been a saving grace for many of us, I'm sure by now a lot of you feel like you're caught up on every single show imaginable. Well, if you're tired of scrolling through the same movies or shows and miss the excitement of weekly releases and brand new binge fests, then you have to get Acorn TV. Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and originals you won't find anywhere else. With Acorn TV, there's always something new to discover. It has hundreds of exclusive shows from around the world, including award-winning mysteries, dramas, comedies, and so much more. And Acorn TV has new releases every week, so you'll never have to worry about running out of content. From production to performances, the series you'll find on Acorn TV are exceptional and refreshing because they're cleverly written, visually striking, and feature renowned actors like David Tennant and Tandy Newton. Midsummer Murders is probably the most classic British mystery series of all time. Fans of that show are in for a treat because Broken Wood Mysteries is like its New Zealand sister. This series is quirky, it's cozy, and a lot of fun. Uh, D.I. Mike Shepard and his by-the-book assistant investigate murder and mayhem in a seemingly kind of quiet town. A new season of that show is actually streaming now. So you get thousands of hours of new enthralling content on Acorn TV for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. 
I love how much content is on Acorn TV and all the different shows from around the world. It really makes it fun to discover new stuff, which makes it so different from most of these other streaming apps these days. If you're ready for a streaming service that offers new stories, new characters, and breathtaking sceneries every week, do what we did and get Acorn TV. You can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code SHAKEN. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code SHAKEN to get your first 30 days free. Well, the other thing, too, is he's saying this in his 1992 prison interview. So right, of course, who knows? You know, he's talking on camera to a reporter in the 90s. Like, who knows if that's exactly true? I mean, there's probably a lot of sort of, you know, filters that are going on there is what I'm trying to say. So, yes, I also imagine he clearly does not have a preference for women. I have no problem if you want to be a bisexual and have preferences, but it's clear here that this is something weird. And Carol, his wife, had absolutely no idea about any bisexuality at all. And Carol thought that when Gacy was kind of going out late at night, doing a lot of late night things, that he was actually dealing in drugs because when she would go look out of the house, he was always talking to young kids, like these Mm -hmm. young runaway types of kids. And so there was a natural inclination to kind of think, drugs, certainly not sex in every, in every sort of way. And Gacy in these interviews had said that in his construction business, he had given 12 sets of keys to his contract employees. So it's just so weird. Yeah. It's weird. And people, which basically says to me that, you know, he shows truck trust in these young men, you know, they, they, they look up to him. They, this is yeah. how he's kind of grooming these young boys, giving them, totally. you know, a place to kind of crash, talk to cash money, these types of things. And Michael Rossi is, is a big guy that comes into play. You're going to know Michael Rossi and David Cram, but for our purposes, yeah. we're going to say Rossi and Cram, but Michael Rossi was 20 years old, worked for Gacy at the time and helped him in the business. But Carol always got a funny feeling about him Gacy apparently yeah. was having a sexual relationship with him, along with David Cram, another coworker. And Cram and Rossi are really his two, at least how they're portrayed in the documentary, his henchmen. Yeah, these and, are his you, henchmen. And Carol, by the way, that's not just like some random little fact. We actually hear in the documentary, Carol herself. I'm not exactly sure where they got the audio, but. The audio is of her being like, I never liked him. There was something about him talking about Rossi. So I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah. Right. And so, again, all of this is still, he's still being surveyed this entire time. And during one of these surveillance trips, Gacy drives away from his house and gives, goes into this gas station and gives this marijuana to a Mm -hmm. gas station attendant, another young kid. And then he drives immediately to Cram's house. Yeah. Um, and and here's where it gets a little right. a little weird and a little janky in the dock because basically, you know, <laughs> the police are kind of looking for a reason. They have probable cause, but they're looking for a reason to arrest him because they know that a lot of these things are going down, but they can't really pinpoint him doing anything wrong. And so right. while they follow him, you know, once he speeds away to go to Cram's house, they go in, they ask this attendant, like, uh, you know, the attendant's like, here's marijuana. It wasn't given to me. Like it was just given to me. It wasn't mine, you know, freaking out. He's like, apparently Gacy's trying to get rid of all of his possessions. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then they, as soon as he gets to Cram's house, they start interviewing Cram and Cram says that Gacy admits that he's killed 33 kids and he's going to try and kill himself at his father's grave. So in this moment of weakness, he admits it to Cram. 
Obviously, this is kind of just hearsay. Once they interview Cram, they decide in order to prevent this because they want Gacy to go on trial, they are going to arrest him for the marijuana possession. And right now, this date that they do this is December 22nd, 1978. Now, let me just say this, and I'm not here to talk conspiracy theories or certainly not trying to undermine any of the police work of the Chicago PD or whatever the police department was, but that's a lot of things lining up really perfectly for them, you know, like, oh, why on earth would, um, you know, Gacy just stop randomly at a convenience store when he knows he's being trailed, give somebody marijuana and then it and then admit to somebody that he's killed the 33 kids and 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 is going to to me it just felt like did that really happen i'm just going to be honest i just felt like no i get it I you mean, know what it, i mean it's just like uh, the police needed to get him and like did they set some of this up not that i ever would undermine police work like that but it just felt a little too convenient that so much of that lined up all at once you know Oh, and it does seem a little odd that of all things to get him on, you know, once we kind of Mar- know yeah. about the case that he had, you know, killed at least 33 people and buried 29 people in his property that it ended up being marijuana to kind of get right. this guy. Uh, so it does seem a little yeah. weird. But again, this is this episode is called Warning Signs. Well, that's true. That's so absolutely that's true. Why. Yeah. So we move on to part three and we'll try to get through a lot of this quickly as we sort of round out the details here. But Gacy's just so invincible. He just thinks that he can't get caught. Twenty nine bodies were found on the property. So they basically get him for the marijuana. They feel like there's probable cause. They get the search warrant. They start digging. And that's that's what happens. Um, now, John Zink, or Zick, I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, goes Zick. M- Zick, Zick yeah. yeah. Goes missing. He's 19 years old. Um, his car is found years later with an owner stealing gas. This blows up, and we know about it only because of Rob Peace going missing. Right. So, so a like, lot of this is going on at this. A lot of missing boys, and people start once. to pay attention once Rob Peace yes. goes missing. Then disturbingly, Gacy, who is, you know, arrested, I guess, for these murders now that there's, uh, you know, bodies being found, is actually smiling in his mugshot. You can look it up online. In fact, it's the shot that they use as his Wikipedia entry if you guys oh, want is to that check right? it out. Yep. Yep. Well, he then confesses to killing all 29 people and hiding parts of their bodies and throwing the rest in the Displains River. Um, Gacy tricks Peace. T- so basically then they're like, well, how the hell did you do this like what happened with uh with peace here we've been looking for him what the fuck he's basically saying that he tricked peace into putting on handcuffs like teaching him a magic trick and then once he had peace in handcuffs he said the way to get out of them is to have the key yes and then it's that was part and darren you 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 can mention this because i was texting you while i was watching this part of the show i was so disturbed at his description of this because we learned this from him in those video recordings in the documentary and that was one of the many moments throughout the show that i had to sort of pause and like take a break and like get away from it because the way he just described it like imagine like learning a magic trick and then you know essentially you're about to be murdered and well what's and 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 what's raped. weird about this is that even though we know, and this these are kind of police accounts, Gacy mm-hmm. was smart enough to never make this confession on tape. So we That's don't right. yeah. really have recordings of him saying, I killed 30, 29 people and buried them here, here, and right. here. And he does end up kind of making this map, and we're going to get to it. But like, 
it just goes to show that he's trying to complicate the situation with everything. It's not yeah, like he's him manipulating saying a hundred percent. He's just trying to make everything feel like you need me to solve the key. And I'm just going to say like, yeah, maybe right. I did this, but have you thought about over here? Yeah, to, totally. You know, right. Yeah. Right. Well, so he shows no emotion during his confession. Then there's a whole swarm of press at the Gacy house as they start, um, you know, exhuming these bodies, essentially. And there's just kind of these normal folks from from nearby houses in the neighborhood just standing around five people deep watching this all unfold. Yep. Um, and people are even chanting like a sporting event, which I found was very disturbing in a sense. Like, OK, fine. You're, you know, you're sort of there must be a human element to this, the relief of it all. But I don't know. It just felt very weird to me, that description. There's another part in this case that we're going to get to that made me feel just as squicked out yeah. as this part in the two, but we'll get to that later. So at this point, they haven't even found Rob Peast. Um, police searched the river for his body. I believe Gacy told them that he did throw his body off of the bridge yeah. into this river. Um, he also gives them a detailed map of where everyone is buried in the house. And he's pretty much spot on. You know, he drew like a little square. They even show it right in the uh, documentary. And he says, you know, there's four over here. There's three here. There's four up here. But he never admits to him being the one to bury these to bodies bury or it. kill them. Just right. keep that in mind. Right. Yeah, that is important. So Carol, the ex-wife, complained to him about the smell in the house. You know, we, we learned that she said that it smelled like dead rats. I mean, imagine finding out this your significant other has killed and has been hiding bodies in the house, Darren. I mean, imagine and Lysol ain't going to kill that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they, 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 I can't even imagine how much Febreze one would need. And I wonder, you know, like, we don't really hear about this, but Carol, his ex-wife, like, I just wonder if she ever even once had a suspicion that it might not be rats. You know, I'm just curious, like, if you're smelling this day in and day out, like, what do you think it is exactly? I know, but like the jump to be like, oh, he must be killing these people, like, or he yeah. must have like, we're on a burial ground. Like, it, it if know. the smell was that bad, it would make me want to check it out myself, but maybe totally. not enough to jump to the conclusion that my husband's a murderer. Yeah, totally. Well, so then police are able to tie John Zick to Gacy because police went to go speak to Michael Rossi and he was waiting for him to drive up in a white Plymouth. As, as the investigators waiting to look through the missing persons report, he noticed that Zick drove a white Plymouth. So there's that connection to that missing persons case. When Rossi was questioned, he said he got the car from Gacy. Gacy so it says ties it together. So, right. Exactly. So Gacy tells uh says basically that Zick gave him the car in exchange for money and he wanted the money to leave town. So it was in fact Gacy who created the idea of Zick as a runaway. And the case basically goes cold and tossed up as a runaway because of what Gacy had said, which is like so disturbing. Exactly. Um Finding out uh, that Gacy ultimately did it once the body was discovered gave the family some closure. I think that was one of the bodies that was underneath uh, the house, I believe. Yes. Um, Gregory Godzik, another victim of Gacy's uh, from December 1976, two years before um, the bodies were, were discovered. That's another person. Yes. Gacy offered him a, pay, uh, a job paying him double. He went to Gacy's house to go get a paycheck and Godzik's mother confronted Gacy about it. But she got nowhere with him or police because basically he shows up and wants a paycheck and then never comes home. Exactly. 
Um, once the case broke out a few years later, Godzik was found in Gacy's house, as we just mentioned. Gacy says that all of his kills were just happenstance at this point. He didn't want, uh, he didn't kill everyone that he had sexual relations with, which I find very interesting because I'm like, so what was the motive then? I mean, that's kind of the bigger kind of conversation that never really truly gets um, talked about until later, but. Yeah. What are yeah. Thoughts? I mean, I. I mean, I don't necessarily think there's a motive. I think it's clear that mm-hmm. he has. He was abused and has psychological issues and is working out his own trauma by doing this in some sort of yeah, way. Right. Whether it is repressed homosexuality or abuse or something. I mean, yes, it's clear that he had sex with more people than he killed because we do know some of his victims and we, mm-hmm. they were able to put them on the stand. In fact, you're going to get to Jeffrey Rignall in a second, but yeah, um, it is. Uh, definitely think I, I don't think the motive is anything other than kate gacy figuring out gacy yeah yeah i think you're right it's a great way to put it well jeffrey rignall is a gay man who gets abducted by gacy right around the same time that peace went missing um jeff calls his partner and tells him uh that he was abducted and explained what happened he was in gacy's car smoking a joint was chloroformed then brought back to his house to be basically tortured and raped. But Gacy dropped him off where he picked him up uh, after the night of the torture. So we don't know yeah, why he ahead. didn't kill him. We don't know. Yeah, why didn't he kill him? Exactly. We don't know if it was just he wasn't in the mood. He Something happened to him. It's very hard to say with Gacy. And he's certainly not going to, I mean, he's dead now, but he's certainly not going to admit it yeah. then because he doesn't want to give anyone any satisfaction of solving anything. So. Yeah, totally. Well, then police interview Rignall at the hospital, but it was very vague and they assumed it was a consensual party because they didn't really know how to handle gay rape back then, which I don't know that they even still do, but especially in the 70s, you know, gay people were just looked at in a completely different way. And I think it's easy, <clears throat> as a woman, I think it's a lot easier to picture women being victims than right, it is for right. men to be victims. Yeah, and for sure. Certainly with men having sex with men, I think it was seen as like, well, you chose this dangerous lifestyle. Lifestyle, yeah, exactly. You know, <clears throat> obviously I, I don't believe that. I'm just saying what I think the general consensus was. <laughs> you and, don't. And therefore gay rape can't be a thing. You yeah, know what I right. mean? Like, how could this not be consensual? Oh, you boys were just having sex, and therefore that's icky right. and weird. Right. Well, so police just didn't care because Rignall was gay. And so, <laughs> you know, basically Jeffrey went on to do his own investigation. Um, Rignall rents a car and tries to recall where he got picked up and waits for Gacy's car to come by. They follow him. They take down the license plate number. They spot him finally after maybe I think it says months and takes it to the police and identified Gacy, and Gacy was released on bond right away for some reason. Yeah, Yeah, immediately. So uh, a few years later, when the bodies are found on the property, you know, Ricknell is watching with anger and frustration, and, you know, you you can't help but look back, and this case might have been handled completely differently if Gacy wasn't uh, gay or his victims were gay or uh, being gay or sex workers, even right. for that matter. Like, I do wonder if this was like a straight guy and, yeah. you know, 33 women who came from white, rich families. Uh, I often wonder how this case would have been handled differently. Yeah, well, the victims were portrayed very differently. And um, regardless if they were gay or runaways, Darren, as you mentioned here, they were people. So it's kind of disappointing that that's kind of the way it went. So let's go into part four now. Okay, John. So, you know, yes, everyone's a victim. And I just want to make sure that we 
you know, acknowledge that. Mostly of, of this yeah. discussion of like how the case is handled has to do with a sign of the times and mm-hmm. hopefully things are getting better with this, but obviously it wasn't then. Right. So, we're moving on to the episode uh, four, and it says by reason of insanity. So this is going to give you an overview of kind of where this episode is going, because yeah. Gacy obviously is a sort of a master manipulator. And so in these interviews that each episode opens with, Gacy basically says that doctors diagnose him, and he's, he's loose about this, but he says doctors diagnose him with borderline antisocial behavior disorder. So... You know, just to give you an idea of how he is starting to set the narrative for him to probably plead insanity. Yeah, he's manipulating again, by the way. Correct. And to get a lesser sentence. He starts studying about law and and realizes. Exactly. April 9th, 1979, a body's found in the Illinois Illinois River, and it is identified as 15-year-old Robert Peast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, Gacy claims to he's never confessed to any of these murders. He's very Jekyll and Hyde. He's a master manipulator. Mm-hmm. Apparently, none of these uh, confessions were on record, on tape, you know, and he claims that's because the police are manipulating it. The police are saying, no, we don't usually record. It's mm-hmm. through the, you know, it's through our notes and stuff like that. So, well, and I really loved your description of Jacqueline Hyde because it's very similar to that. I mean, especially you can see in this documentary, you know, he's just sitting there politely with a collared shirt on describing this stuff, but he was murdering and disposing of bodies in such a heinous and disturbing way. Yeah. And I think the Jacqueline Hyde uh, metaphor is perfect for this scenario. Yeah, so Gacy, you know, he he's gearing up for this trial here, right? Mm-hmm. Because he knows he's kind of fucked. They're finding all these bodies. He gets an attorney with an attorney present. He starts talking about in the room and confessing about, talking about Jack Hanley, how, how Jack is the murderer. Uh, he's basically trying to, you know, create this this mm-hmm. second persona to appear to be, whether it's schizophrenic, split personality, yeah. something to try and create this narrative for the insanity defense. And Gary Gacy started studying this when he was in prison. I mean, he's studying law. He's learning about the insanity defense. They even said that later on they found a book in his cell that had the insanity plea page, mm. like, doggy, Earmarks, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So... Prosecutors need to basically argue that there's a difference between insanity and being rationally responsible for this, uh-huh. which Gacy is. Okay, so that's that's really where the prosecutor mm-hmm. is coming to terms with this. They have to show that he knew what he was doing as rationally as we can say that somebody, basically not an insane person, but clearly has yeah. some issues. Right. Um, so Gregory Gottsick, if we remember, he was the victim. Right. Uh, his mother was very adamant and very vocal in the press. I mean, she plays a huge role that she wants the death penalty for Gacy. Mm-hmm. And Gacy basically tells the psychiatrist in his trial that there was, when he's talking to the prosecutors and, and lawyers and attorneys, that there was someone else who knew about the bodies being buried at the house. Mm, Michael so Rossi, now he's throwing people under the bus. Interesting. He's throwing people under the bus, or he's at least creating a scenario which would imply... Just he a manipulation the, yeah. of, of it. And, you know, he could have been forced by another person. That being said, when I really look back at this case, mm-hmm. this one guy, when we look at photos of the crawl space, it does seem unlikely that he would have mm-hmm. done this all by himself. Totally, to yeah. Me. You know, so I, it, it also sets that stage for like, well, who the fuck else? Who else was there? Right. And if we remember Michael Rossi, David Cram, they used to dig under the crawl space. Remember, we thought it was like for drain pipes and shit mm-hmm. like that. 
So Gacy thinks that those boys knew and the prosecution basically calls them as witnesses for the state because they're thinking these guys got to know something right. about this fucking case. They've it's been like, around Gacy for too long to not know about this. And it's like you're working so closely with him and you're basically having a romantic sort of relationship for whatever, you know, yeah. maybe what, it's in not some way. Right. Yeah. It's not love of course, but it's, it's definitely something. And you know, I think one of the people, you know, one of the experts, maybe even the prosecutor in the documentary is like, if they didn't know what was going on, they're like as dumb as rocks, because right, how could right. they not? It wasn't like this all happened in one single instant. This was like trenches were built, bodies were buried, you know, like it's a whole process over time. But that being said, you know, especially with these guys, and we don't know much because essentially, you know, when Cram testifies for the court... He's saying that he got money from Gacy, but that was for a plumbing project. So he kind of pleads ignorance on this. Rossi admitted to having a sexual relationship in the beginning, but apparently denied it on the stands and was not cooperative with the state, apparently. So we don't really know. And, you know, to be fair, I could see a scenario under which those guys have undying loyalty to him because, A, they're alive. B, they have a car, money, a place to crash, you know, like there's, there were a lot of perks of probably being one of Gacy's henchmen back then. Yeah. And also, you know, think about the gay, the gay stuff again, because this isn't 2021. This is the seventies or whatever early eighties it is at this point. And, you know, men who may be closeted aren't going to stand up in public in a courtroom and be like, yeah, I totally had a sexual thing. I mean, you know, if you're going to get off and, you know, um, you know, be found not guilty and maybe try to build a life for yourself after this, then, you know, there is a part of you that's like ego driven and, you know, wants to defend your reputation, whether it's true or not. And and let's also set the stage because I feel like I didn't really before. Maybe we did kind of paint the picture, but Rossi and Cram are really these like street toughs kind of guys. That's a good like, point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't really know how else to put it, but they, they weren't, com- they weren't coming from, uh, a wealthy background wealthy, by any yeah. stand. I mean, these were kind of low-income, backwoodsy type of guys. Just to just to agree, you know yeah. present the scenario for it, because all of a sudden Rossi sort of gets this really high-powered political attorney, which set off a lot of flares for me and a lot of red flags because yeah. that's really odd for someone from his background to be able to obtain, yeah, especially right. back then. Um, both Rossi and Cram deny ever being involved with burying any bodies or knowing anything related to any of these murders or deaths. I mean, the crawl space, if we remember from the video, from the photos, is extremely small. And Gacy yeah. is not a svelte man. No. I mean, he's a big boy. So and it's you a can, little weird to think about him doing this by himself. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, I, if you if you watch the documentary, you can almost see... You see a place that was like maybe the crawl space entrance, right? And as somebody else described him earlier in the documentary, he's a roly poly guy, as they say. Right. So for him to not only get down into that crawl space, but then also be carrying a dead, essentially decomposing body and like not, you know, I hate to I hate to even like describe it this way, but without leaving a trail of like blood or whatever else could happen to a body that's been tortured and murdered behind him. I think, you know, it kind of does make you think it had to have been somebody else, you know, assisting with the, 
getting rid of these bodies, essentially. Well, and not only that, which I didn't even remember from originally studying this case, Jeffrey Rignall, if we remember from when you were talking mm -hmm. about him just previously, he's testified and like... And his partner says, because he's no longer alive, unfortunately, his partner basically yeah. says that that Jeffrey, when he was recounting what had happened to him, felt so traumatized by his own testimony that he threw up in court. They had to take a break. Like it oh was, my God. it was so hard to even talk about after it happened. Of course, you know, mm -hmm. like no surprise yeah. there, but just like, and Rignall says that in his state of delirium, being poisoned with chloroform, being tortured. Mm -hmm. He remembers there was another man in the house. So that also adds to this narrative of like, I don't think Gacy did this by himself. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that he that he could. And then it makes you wonder about his ex-wife, not that she would be, not. I'm not al alleging that she's part of it, but were there other men of, you know, a certain build or a certain, you know, influence that were around Gacy throughout the years that she could maybe, you know point to and say, Hey, he's around a lot of the same times these boys were, right. um, is there, right. a, but we never really find that out. We don't really find that out, but it is a question that I guess I never really considered before. Yeah, so totally. This documentary takes like a better look at it, I think, than I thought. Okay, so then when we go, we flash forward to this 1992 interview with Gacy. Yeah. Gacy admits to being sexually assaulted as a kid by a contractor. This to me was like ding, 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 ding of everything <laughs> yeah. we had sort of talked about before of clear, I mean, whether or not it was a contractor and whether or not, you mm -hmm. know, I think just him being able to say that he's clearly taking on this role of his abuser, at least in his narrative. Yeah, and maybe he he learned, you know, certain techniques through this same thing and that's how he sort of took it to you know, to his own world as an older man. I mean, again, we're not John Wayne Gacy apologists, but when you look at the psychoanalysis of how these people become serial killers, it usually ends up being that they were abused or sexually assaulted when they were younger and they don't process it and they sort it sort of manifests itself into the most heinous and insidious personality traits, you know? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, and it's, it's so basically when he's on trial, he gets transported back to the jail, you know, while mm -hmm. the trial's happening by one of the cops. And the cop says he starts, one of the investigators, and one yeah. of the investigators says he starts talking to Gacy, and Gacy's like, how many, how many murders am I, am I up for? And, you know, the, <laughs> the guy's like 33, and he's like, I don't know, 45 seems like a good number to me. So Ugh. this is adding to the narrative, which is where we're going to really go into now of being like, there's just a lot more to the Gacy story that unfortunately I don't think we're ever going to be able to fully solve. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. Maybe in the future, but there's so much that we don't know because he was, spoiler alert, executed before any sort yeah. of further interviews could go on. Not that he'd ever admit to it if he wasn't executed, but it's it's just adding to the complications and puzzles of this fucking case. Yeah, and you also have to think, too, like, how much of this is actually, you know, obviously a lot of his confession was true. They were able to pinpoint certain things. But what is he not telling us? Remember, he's a master manipulator. So there's probably even more stories out there that he never even got around to for whatever reasons. Um, we, you know, as we start part five 
of this documentary and uh, out of six. And by the way, we realize this is a long episode, but we hope you guys are loving it. Um, we realize that John There's a Wayne lot Gacy, to get to. Lots, yeah, a lot there of Gacy is a lot. layers. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of Gacy layers. That's right. Well, we find out that he he talks in uh, his video interview saying that he ran away when he was 16 and lived in Las Vegas for three months. And he slept and worked in a mortuary. And one of the lines that really bothered me in his testimony, or not his testimony, but these, uh, you know, video interviews, he said, quote, and besides the dead won't bother you. It's the living that you got to worry about. And I'm like, so you've got a whole fucking motto about these fucking murders? Like, who are you? I know. And he claimed to be like, I never slept with the dead body or whatever. And so, like, he's kind of defending, like, he knows it's a very odd thing. But at the same time, yes, like, if you're a runaway at 16 and you find sanctuary in a mortuary, it's... It's a creepy thing, but it's not necessarily like, okay, therefore you did something wrong. No, I just yeah, think it so. sort of this sets this character development exactly. of his that like death clearly does not bother him in the way that it bothers other yeah. rational people. Yeah. Well, so his trial begins and basically ends rather quickly. The jury was only out for two hours for six weeks of a trial. That's nothing. That's nothing. And when a jury comes out fast, Darren, it usually means not guilty. Um, That typically at that point is at least what that meant. Um, There were seven men and five women in the jury, and it took them less than two hours, as we just mentioned. And they found him guilty. And um, Gacy then faced death penalty, um, the death penalty after the guilty verdict. And the same jury would deliberate whether or not Gacy would be put to death by the electric chair. So it's I'm like really two c- trials kind of going yes. on. So he's found guilty two in the decisions. first one. And then the second decision with that same jury is basically, do we put this man to death or is it life behind bars? Right. So yeah. when convicted of the death penalty, people in the courthouse cheered, as you mm-hmm. probably would expect. That's what bothered me. Well, yeah. like, and his whole execution bothers me. How like people cheer it on because like I'm not I'm not pleased that Gacy was living, but I can't cheer someone's death. That just, just seems dying, really yeah. airy to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, obviously, we've talked about this a lot over the years, and it's like neither of us have ever been in a situation where we've ever had to sort of look at our, uh, you know, an abuser or a murderer. Absolutely. So who knows how we would feel in those situations, but I know what you're saying. It's a weird feeling to cheer someone's death no matter what, because what, you know, listen, we can spend a whole another hour on this if we wanted to, but what lessons are learned and like, how do you move forward as a society? If our response to everything is just to kill people, it's just yeah, very, I, weird. I just don't know how that helps like the victim's families if they see people cheering. I, d- I don't know. Yeah. Like, I just don't think anything about this should be happy or celebrated. This is totally. a horrible fucking case. Yeah, and, G- you know, Gacy ended up being sort of the poster child for the death penalty. So fast forward to 1992, as we mentioned, that's where these interviews with Gacy are from in the documentary. Um, Karen Conti is Gacy's death row attorney. Mm-hmm. Gacy became an artist in prison, Darren, and he was selling um, his pieces in prison, and the state was trying to take Gacy's money away that he was making from this artwork um so he originally interviewed conti to represent him in the civil case so there's all kinds of like drama going on there as well 
Right, because that's how she was like, you know, people made fun of me for, you know, how could you defend, like, you know, yeah. John Wayne Gacy? And she's like, it actually, I came to him with a civil, like, he came to me with yeah. a civil case, not death penalty at, originally. So that's kind of right. how it started with her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it turns out Gacy didn't actually even get the death penalty for all 33 accounts of the murders that he was up for. Lawyers uh, find out that he was documented out of the state where some of these boys had gone missing. So perhaps he was innocent, technically, for at least some of these crimes. So attorneys are basically trying to beat the clock on his execution date. You know, I think they're trying to get either as much information from him as they can or trying to push the date as far along as possible, you know, and you know that even when you get death penalty, you could sit on death row for decades. I mean, it's not an easy process. Yeah. And so during this time, the state of Illinois changed the sentence of the electric chair to lethal injection. Right. And um, that's, you know, I don't know that they they really dwelled too much about uh, why they did that. Do you remember? I'm trying to remember if there was I mean, I think it was just, I'm sure the law changed um, just because it was probably felt more humane um, to do it that way in some sort of way that the electric chair was kind of this very tortured way to die as opposed to lethal, which felt a little bit more like a euthanizing type of trick. I'm not sure of the exact reason, but I imagine it had to do with that. Yeah, probably. Um, Because regardless, the electric chair is just, I don't even want to get into that. But anyway, uh, John Wayne Gacy was executed on May 10th, 1994. Um, you know, people began cheering and singing in celebration of his death. And Darren, I think like you just said, it's a little awkward for people who are against the death penalty to cheer anybody else's death Yeah, on. just nothing feels celebratory. I mean, yeah. there's relief in that. Of and course. I'm sure peace. But, but celebration, just in my opinion, obviously, I'm not trying yeah, of to course. discount it. It just feels weird. Just well, feels weird. at least... I agree. Lethal injection failed, though, and people say that he actually suffocated to death and that he probably felt more pain than they had planned on sort of happening. Gacy alluded to his lawyers that um, or to there being a snuff film operation and that these videos sold on the black market. Obviously, this was before uh, his execution. John Norman, who was a prisoner, um, created a newsletter at the Cook County Jail, The Delta Project, which involves setting men up who want to have sex with boys. And it's sort of like a sex ring, you know, whether for sex or snuff films, whatever. Well, this is sorry to interrupt. John. No, I just wanted to say, because this episode is called like, you have to dig. And at first it was like, yeah, for mm-hmm. me, I was like, Oh, digging for bodies. But this is where the layer of the Gacy case gets. You have to dig in this because this is where totally. it gets complicated. A lot of people don't know. So that's yeah. why when Gacy's alluding this to lawyers, once he's executed, this shit comes out. That's right. So then right. one of the main players in this quote unquote sex ring was Phil Paskey or Pask. I forget how you said it. No, it's Paskey. Yeah, Paskey. Um, and who was a work colleague of Gacy's. And so this brought up a lot of thoughts in my head, Darren, because you and I have talked a lot about child sex trafficking over the years. Yeah. And especially in the Midwest, I think somebody we talked to a while back even called the Midwest like the child sex trafficking capital of the world because so many people um, just kind of play in and out of there, for lack of a better word. And um, it it just really felt like something like that had to have been going on, especially given... Gacy's um, interest in entrepreneurship and making money and, you know, that whole thing. It just felt very unsettling to me. It's 
I just I can't prove it, but it seems yeah. so tied together. Like it's just yeah. it's it's too coincidental for me. Yeah, you even have it in here. As John would say, it's very sus. Yeah, as you very, put. yeah. Very which sus. is my favorite thing. Yeah. Gacy hints to John Norman to look into the videos of the boys to see if any of them are the victims of Gacy's to try and blame Norman. So essentially, you know, here he's trying to say, hey, look at this evidence. It was all him and had nothing to do with me. Right. These are snuff films. Perhaps they they were involved in it and they were buried underneath my property because I yeah. knew this guy. And so it was just kind of this diversion away from him. Right. So then in 1998, many years later, you know, post uh, execution, Bill Dorsch, an old neighbor of Gacy's and a detective, interviews Gacy's other neighbors at the house where he lived where his, uh, with his mother on Elston Avenue. He finds out that neighbors saw huge trenches built outside his apartment building, hauling big trash bags outside at night. Again, this isn't really sort of adding to, you know, to to his his case whatsoever. Right. And the reason Bill Dorsch kind of reopens this in his mind is because he's thinking of, he used to be neighbors with Gacy at this property. And he was thinking yeah. one night after this whole thing happened about how he ran into Gacy in the middle of the night hauling this big trash yeah. bag of stuff. And he was like, you know... Well, well, you know, Gacy, what's going on? Why are you working at night? And he was like, well, you know, you, you know, I'm a workaholic. Like, you got to do it now. Otherwise, you're never going to do it. And that right, right. struck him as weird years later. And that's why he went to go keep investigating uh, with this case to keep it going. Because he thought there might be other people we're not aware of. Well, meanwhile, no one in the police is listening to Dorsch. And he's basically getting these orders that nothing is going to be found at this property. Um, so then they have ground penetrating radar, which is actually a new technology at the time. And they do a survey of Gacy's mother's house and they find what are called anomalies, AKA it's not just the ground under there. They find um, 17 anomalies. Oh, was it 17? Wow. It was 17. So police dig in a place that the neighbor specifically told them not to look since there was a bush there that hadn't ever been moved in his entire time. And basically they came up with absolutely nothing. Dorsch felt completely defeated. Chicago Police Department deliberately botched the search on the property. Even the radar company was weirded out by the police's response. This is what the documentary is alleging, essentially. Right. And it just begs the question, Darren, as you put in our document notes here, who is covering up for Gacy? Because it's just too many things kind of coming out, you know, aligning so perfectly with him. Well, and, the, and the radar, they, they find 17 anomalies and the police check and two of them. Two, two of them. Two. Right. Two. Well, it obviously didn't behoove the police department to admit that those searches and cases weren't done very well. Um, right. And yeah, as you said, 17 of those and then only two were kind of looked into. So this kind of keeps the Gacy case just kind of going and open and just even though we know we have a convicted killer here, it's sort of like, well, how far does this go? How yeah. many missing boys? How many families can we get closure with? And specifically, who else may or may not have been connected to the Gacy murders? Because that's exactly. not something I think that they were even thinking of the right way when he was alive and, and in jail even. Well, right. And so, you know, the the documentary kind of fast forwards. And if we remember Craig Boley, the guy who was mm -hmm. this like, prison correspondent for some time, basically before he gets executed, um, Gacy had given him when he went to go visit him some tapes that he wanted him to have, that he wanted him to save for him uh, before he gets ex executed. What's weird here is that he never thought to open any of the tapes until last year. That's so very is, weird. <laughs> this is current, okay? Yeah, so current, So basically, yeah. on these tapes, Casey is confessing, 
and say he really doesn't know why he did any of these murders of what he did. And and Bully suggests the, is is estimating that these are coming around probably 1979 or so, um, which is by its by the way so unsettling. Here he is confessing around the time of all these murders. They're less than a year too old at this point, probably. And he's basically saying, I don't know why I did that. I mean, isn't that the most chilling thing? I mean, there were so many murders. Well, right. It also kind of shows like a little bit of like kind of against insanity because he's just kind of like, yeah, I did it. Like he's so casual with it. You know, he was convicted of 33 murders, like they said, but there were so many missing people around this time. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason to really believe that Gacy only killed 33 people considering he told the cops 45 and you know, why would it just be all this one house? So fast forward just to about a decade ago, 2011 in Chicago, Thomas Dart, the Cook County Sheriff and Lieutenant Lieutenant Jason Moran reopened the Gacy case in order to solve more murders and identify because there was eight of the 33 victims that were never identified. They weren't right. solved cases. So there's kind of eight families that we know of that certainly didn't get closure. The mm. bodies, unfortunately, were too de- decomposed with the lime mm-hmm. and over time that they couldn't be identified originally. And really, it's like eight forgotten people. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what it comes down to, which is really Sadly. sad. Well, reopening the case helped to exhume the bodies and get DNA samples and also get some teeth uh, imprints from whatever mm-hmm. they could kind of get. They were also looking for anyone. They asked people to uh, report in with any DNA samples and teeth kind of, uh, you know, like dental records, some, yep. dental records uh, for anyone who was missing from 1970 to 1979, white males, 14 to 21 years old. So mm-hmm. they get a flood of requests. One of the first requests to come in is this guy, William Bundy, came in from two different sources. And he was one of the missing boys, but unfortunately the family just couldn't get together some dental records, right? But Bundy did tell his friends at the time that he was working construction. Mm. Okay, so this obviously perks the detective's ears up. Detectives collects DNA from Bundy's sister, but obviously it's only a partial profile when you look at the dental comparisons. But both um, both of the brother and sister were missing similar teeth. Mm. And so due to this, because they could kind of check out with the, with the, uh, the body that they, that, that was also missing the same teeth. They identified victim 19 as William George Bundy. So one (sighs) family gets closure here, but here's another interesting case that the documentary mentioned. So obviously technology has changed so much that there could, there could always be a chance of misidentification, especially Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with DNA from that long ago. One such case is Michael Marino, who was 14 years old when he went missing in 1976. Mm-hmm. Ch- cops again chalked this up to a runaway at the time, but his mother kept persisting, kept going to Chicago's police to complain. Marino's mother provides dental records to the original Gacy case, and she was told that he was not identified as being a victim. So she has clear records, and the cops basically say, nope, like he's not one of the boys in the mm. house. No. Fast forward to March 1980, two detectives come to her door, tell her that they were mistaken, and that he actually was identified as one of the victims. Can of you Gacy's. F- fucking imagine that feeling? This poor fucking woman. So yeah. now she's yeah. tossed between being happy that he'd been identified, but also not trusting it, because why wouldn't you say that yeah. originally? What possibly could have changed? So she really becomes convinced in her mind that he's been misidentified. She says she goes to his grave, and he she kind of gets this cold feeling. It's just this mother's instinct, if you will. She gets an attorney to get an autopsy of Michael's body and the attorney notices discrepancy in the dental (sighs) records. She was afforded an exhumation of her son's body to get some DNA samples and it turns out 
It wasn't her son, Michael Marino. So she went from it wasn't her son to, oops, by the way, it was your son. To, to her, her being like, it's yeah. not her son. Which I don't understand. Like, how does... Okay, keep going. Sorry, well, I'm just getting heated. Here's part of this, because remember, yeah. as you were saying, it doesn't behoove police to kind of say that yeah. this, this mass murderer, one of the biggest mass murderers of our time, serial killers yeah. of our time, that an investigation around him was botched, right? right so right. even though the mother sort of proves that it's not Michael Marino, the police refuse to acknowledge this and still don't to this day. So he's That's... still identified as one of Gacy's victims. Back to the radar detection of Gacy's <sighs> mother's house when you know, they only did yeah. two of the 17 spots where they dig. There was such secrecy going on here that people are like, what yeah. the hell? So no wonder this even gives further doubt into Michael Marino's mother's mind. Yeah, sure. Fast forward to May 2012 in Chicago. Cook County agrees to let a search in that apartment building finally happen again where they had the mm-hmm. 17 spots. Police search overnight. No press around. No witnesses can see. They claim that they did it in the middle of the night, and they find nothing. So we're not even confident a search happened, but they said that they well, did, and they said that they find nothing. Well, can I tell you, though, it's almost like, and I, I'm not undermining any police departments, but when you hear this, when you hear this description... I have to be suspicious to a. I'm so sus, Darren. Where I'm so sussed out right now. I'm so sussed out. Where I feel like were they digging out, you know, exhuming some bodies and moving them to make it seem like there was nothing there? And if so, why were they doing that? Like, how do they have all of this going on and then at the end of the night being like, "Eh, nothing was here. I, well, I just, or, I just or can't they didn't dig at all. Right? Yeah. Or they didn't dig at all, and it it just seems like they would want to solve the case, but at the same time, remember Gacy's political connections and remember he's literally one of the probably first three serial killers that anyone in America can name. You know? Yeah, that's right. For the police to think that that they botched this case is not a good PR move for the Chicago police. So... Unfortunately, this case kind of led to nothing, uh, you know, as much as much as we wanted to happen. You know, David Cram died by suicide in 2001. Michael Rossi wouldn't even participate in the doc, has claimed never knew anything. Mm -hmm. Another victim in 2017 recently was actually uh, exhumed and identified as a victim, James Hakinson. So this is kind of still ongoing. There are six victims and really there's seven because Michael Marino's. We're not, the police are saying it's Michael Marino, but, but the yeah, mother's not, not convinced it's Michael Marino. So there's so six who or is it, seven technically victims that remain identified to this day. Voorhees, the guy that he was accused of in Iowa for the sodomy charge, yeah. um, committed suicide as well. Ugh. So, you know, it's just a sad fucking story that it's unfortunately terrible. we all thought we could kind of put to bed, but this doc kind of made me realize that we can't because... There's probably so many more victims of Gacy. He's probably so much. He probably hasn't even. And when I say greater legacy, I don't mean that in a good way at all. Then we probably even realize. And that's probably the biggest heist of all time with Gacy. I agree because two things come to mind as I, as we wrap up the show. Um, First of all, having worked in construction, having worked in contracting, how like how are we to not think that there aren't other sites like under his crawl space at his house? Right. Like he's all over the place. He has all the equipment he needs. He has all the tools he needs, all the money he needs. He's it seems clear he's working with other people. 
he's not a dumb guy. He knows how to cover his tracks in, in, in a lot of ways. So I find it hard to believe that under his home is the one and only place that a lot of these victims sadly are. That being said, I almost wonder, like, as, as, as egotistical and manipulative as he is, would that have come out in one of these interviews where he seems to be really enjoying being able to talk about it openly? Well, and I'm hoping in some ways, you know, because this case is kind of still at the forefront, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when when ownership changes, when when regimes end, maybe we can do an actual search that people can see of his mother's yeah. property on Elston and... You know, maybe more people or at least families might get closure with this, but it's yeah. uh, it's hard not to imagine if you were a missing, if you were a family member of a missing boy around that time, around For that area. Sure. It's hard. It's hard not to imagine them being a Gacy victim. If oh, I'm being perfectly honest here. No, I completely agree. I will say this too, you know, I worked at Oxygen for so long, Darren, I had been watching so many crime documentaries, I can't even name them all. This was, and you were, I think I mentioned this earlier, I was texting you, I had to pause this particular show multiple times because obviously 33 victims is terrible. Also, I don't know if it's just because I'm a young, or well, maybe I'm not that young, but I was a young huh. gay white guy at some point, you know? Sure. And it just really related to me. And, you know, I think about gay men and like the the way they come of age in a sense, at least my experience and the different older men that had come and gone in my life, not as not in a relationship way, but, you know, people that are attracted to you because you're a young, handsome white guy and how easily how easy it would have been for me to even get snatched up or you know, I think, you know, the, the magic trick with the handcuffs, I'm like, not that I would ever myself find myself in that position. I don't think, but like, I don't know when you're young and impressionable. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we grew up in a time that was different. There wasn't as much stranger danger back then. That's true. Yeah. It was a lot more, uh, when I say free love, I mean, it's like people could smoke joints and you could get, you know, this is post sixties era. This is, yeah. you know, people are a little bit more wheelie and dealy, especially in the gay community when everything, you'd feels hop in a like, car. Yeah. Yeah. Where everything feels very underground in the first place, you know? So yeah, it's, right. it's, it's just a tragic fucking story. Yeah. Uh, you know, we obviously highly recommend checking out John Wayne Gacy, devil in disguise on Peacock. The first episode yeah. is free. The rest you pay for, although I do think we did a pretty good job of of covering the ins and outs. <laughs> yeah, you don't even need uh, to watch and, it. And this episode is free, so there you go, guys. There you go. By the way, they um, we should mention Peacock did not ask. This is not a like paid endorsement at all. We were just oh, no, ex- not at all. interested just... in this particular documentary and decided to do it. Um, but yeah, that's the John Wayne Gacy case. And wow, what a... I think, listen, it is a dis- it's a depressing story but and it might not I be th- over and it might not, it be, might not over. be over and i think the documentary did a pretty good job of like un- uncovering a lot of layers of that case that i didn't even know about i absolutely agree but i want to end on a positive note yes this we is, must uh yeah so some listener shout outs here caitlin in our facebook group said john thrasher just here to check up on you and your <laughs> seasonal allergies today i about died lol um <laughs> it's true uh, you, yeah. not only do you have seasonal allergies, but that is your character as a uh, Mr. Allergy. It's like, what is going on with you today? You know, I'm like the Mucinex, like mucus guy, basically. If you remember him from the essentially the who you are as a person, yeah. if I were to yeah. sum you up with one moral <laughs> trait, I would be like, he's the Mucinex guy. 
Well, I wanted to say, Caitlin, thank you. I did respond to Caitlin in our Facebook group. I am struggling, Darren, with yes. my seasonal allergies, but I decided not to bring it up on the show because who wants to hear that every year in March and April? Um, but since one listener cared so much about my my well being, I thought I should I should mention that. So thank it's you, Caitlin. It's cute for you to think that you only talk about your allergies in March <laughs> and know. April. It's cute. It's just I cute. Know. It's a cute I fact. Know. Yes. I'm one of those people that has to like vent to process my emotions. Oh. So it's part of you, babe. You're the music yeah. guy. I love you. I think I think that's why I'm a great podcaster, Darren. I just I talk agree. all the time. Chastity in our Facebook group said, I'm in a group for the gym I go to, and there are always posts asking what music do you listen to while working out? My answer is always murder pods. And I thought, Chastity, if we're part of your murder podcast gym playlist, then that's all we could ever ask for. And you I got to admit, I mean? Chastity, I am just as weird as you. I listen to podcasts <laughs> while I work out, uh, so I completely get it. And yeah. uh, it's just more interesting sometimes to work out and get knowledge at the same time. So thank Hell you, Chastity, yeah. for listening. Yeah. And for all you guys out there, make sure you're signing up for our Patreon. You know, we're independent. Yes. We need your help. Uh, Patreon.com slash shaken and disturbed. And you can hear our voice memos that we send to each other there. So that's where that's obviously where you need to sign up. And by Which the way... Pretty good, actually. Yeah, pretty good. And you don't have... That's for any tier. So you can sign up for the basic tier or whatever tier you want. You're going to get the bonus stuff no matter and what. And remember, so. just because you sign up for the basic tier does not make you basic. You know what no, I mean? No, it's if not. You, it's, you ain't basic. You're amazing. That's all I got to say. Uh, well, but you, we you hope... You can also follow us on social media sorry. at Carpe Darren, at Sorcerer, and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Subscribe. Um, we hope that you guys enjoyed our deluxe, extra special edition of uh, Shaken and Disturbed this week. We know it's a long one, but sometimes we have a lot to say, you know? We really did about Gacy, gotta say. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys on next week's episode. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. That was that was actually cool.